um, to Roy's uh, paper, which is the third and last paper of our session. And then we'll have an open, open uh, half hour or so at the end. Um, uh, the paper is titled uh, Circulation, Patronage and Silence in the Practice of History Writing in Early Modern Maharashtra from uh, Roy uh, uh, Fischel, who's at SOAS. Are uh, you there? Yeah, yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, thank you, Ananya, and thank you also for the wonderful comments that you have suggested the, on the way to, to this presentation. And thank you for the organizer for, for this wonderful event and for giving me the opportunity to present my work. Um, I want to change somewhat of the perspective of the previous wonderful two papers, even though they interact very well. It, my perspective is quite different and I'm changing here from the vernacular to the cosmopolitan and, <clears throat> sorry, and from a story of, um, let's say, interaction, circulation and um, abundance of, of materials to, in a way, a story of absence and silence. And this paper is a work in progress. It's quite an early stage of a new investigation that I'm or, or new inquiry into the question of Persian in the Deccan um, within the framework that defined our approach to it. Uh, the historiography of the early modern Muslim world as a whole and its links to India have been going through some significant changes. Previously, uh, the analysis emphasized religion as the leading and defining uh, factor um, for states and societies. This has shifted considerably and in particular in, uh, in the recent decades we see uh, the promotion of other factors, cultural, political, social, pushing religion to a more minor position. A useful concept that emerged in recent decades is that of the cosmopolitan or, or, or the Persian cosmopolis, building on the kind of interaction of two strands of, of uh, inquiry. One is that of Marshall Hodgson about a cultural approach to Islam as world history in the, uh, he wrote in the 60s and 70s, and later Sheldon Pollock uh, from uh, the South Asian perspective and trying to model that into world history. The idea of the Persian cosmopolis is now ubiquitous in the analysis of early modern Muslim world as a whole, and it's it is also predominant in the investigation into the political language and institution of early modern India. The main idea behind the uh, Persian cosmopolis is a cultural one, and it's built around shared aesthetics, value and ideologies, and of course, language, the Persian language, uh, which is spread with the circulation of people and text. Richard Eaton recently characterized the cosmopolis in four uh, terms. First is the, and I quote, shared investment in uh, preserving moral and social order in a transregional or what he calls placeless uh, frame. It is uh, what Eaton defines grounded in a prestigious language and literature that conferred elite status on their users. A third point is that it contains a discourse of universal uh, dominion. And lastly, it transcends uh, the claims of any and all religions. This turns Persian into a prestige language for historiography and literature, 
and the medium of bureaucracy and interregional diplomacy. This definition defines or emphasizes the role of Persian as a written language, or to use Nile Green's term, it was Persiographia, as opposed to a Persophony, a term that was promoted by uh, Bert uh, Fragner. So it's not the people who speak Persian, it's those people who write Persian. The idea of the cosmopolis offers a, a narrative of diffusion and integration that explains how Persian became progressively central to both political and cultural life in India and to the subcontinent's position vis-a-vis -vis the Muslim world. However, to what level can we assume uh, this all-encompassing impact on the subcontinent as a whole? Was it unified in its forms or did it vary uh, between times and places? In this paper, I examine a case that might complicate this uh, view of, of, of this um, nice spread of the uh, cosmopolis, of the Persian cosmopolis. And I want to focus Maharashtra in the first half of the 17th century as a case study. And I argue that the margins of the cosmopolitan world introduces a complex and nuanced story of partial integration, which remains patchy and precarious. This in turn reflects the limitation of this otherwise useful model to grasp realities beyond the imperial centers. And I want to start with a story which is a very familiar one. In March of 1596, the Sultanate of Ahmadnagar celebrated a great achievement. The uh, Queen uh, Dowager Chand Bibi, uh, the most powerful person in the uh, Sultanate at the time, united many conflicting parties and secured the support of the neighboring uh, sultanates of Bijapur and Golconda. This united the Kani front pushed the Mughals to enter negotiations with the besieged Ahmadnagar. The negotiations were successful and ended with a peace agreement in which Ahmadnagar ceded Berar to the Mughals and the empire withdrew its forces. These events were celebrated and are very important uh, in the construction of the memory of Chand Bibi as a local heroine. The historical significance remains, let's say, doubtful, or at least limited, because it was a very uh, short period that the Mughals were not around. Um, they stalled their progress for three or four years, but by 1600, Akbar sent more forces, and this time they did conquer Ahmadnagar Fort. But this event is meaningful for another reason. It is the last event reported in a local Persian chronicle, um, closing the appendix to Said Ali Tabatabai's Burhan al-Ma'asir, uh, probably completed by his son Abu Talib in 1596. With this chronicle, Maharashtra stopped serving as a hub uh, for writing in Persian, and I'll define it a little bit better later, for most of the 17th century. Now, this was a sharp break from the past. In the 16th century, Ahmadnagar was a thriving center for the production in Persia. From the very early decades of the century, when luminaries such as the scholar and diplomat Shatahir Husseini settled in Ahmadnagar, uh, the Sultanate was a center of production from chancery document and Inshah collection to religious and scholarly texts. Poets such as Oftabi, uh, Zuhuri, or, or Malikumi enjoyed royal patronage. The historian Tabatabai, whom I just mentioned, 
uh, uh, worked in the court, and also Muhammad Qasim Firishta, probably the most famous historian from the Deccan Sultanates, uh, who is mostly associated with Ibrahim Adil Shah II of Bijapur, started his career in some unclear capacity in Ahmadnagar. Khushab and Qubad al-Husseini served the Nizam Shahi Sultan as the diplomat to the Safavid court, completing later his Tariqe Ilchi Nizam Shah, uh, other than Firishta, probably the um, history of the Deccan in Persian that enjoyed most attention by scholars outside the region. The thriving scene vanished rapidly from the 1590s. For most of the 17th century, definitely the first half of it, and just changing a little bit and slowly in the second half of the 17th century, there is no historiography written in Persian in most of Maharashtra. Uh, also, we don't have uh, courtly poetry or insha collections. This led to the literary scholar uh, T.N. Devare to completely write Ahmadnagar off in his survey of Persian literature in the Deccan. The uh, lacuna was not an all Deccani affair, but unique to Maharashtra. Elsewhere in the Deccan, the 17th century and the, the first half of the 17th century saw the abundance of writing in Persian. Kumi and Zuhuri, for example, completed their most important work in Bijapur, whereas uh, other poets enjoyed Kutub Shai patronage in Golconda. The first half of the 17th century saw prolific historiographical writing, with Firishta, of course, completing his monumental world history in Bijapur, uh, where also we have Rafiuddin Shirazi, Zuhuri's son Zahur, and Fuzuni Tarabadi um, writing their histories. In Golconda, we similarly see uh, Mahmoud ben Abdallah Nishapuri, Andrew Peacock suggested he's the famous anonymous chronicler of Golconda um, in the first decades of the 17th century. And in the following generation, Nizamuddin Ahmad Shirazi wrote his history um, there as well. So how can we explain this significant difference between Maharashtra and its neighbors, a difference that persisted for almost a century? At first blush, the answer sounds simple. Court-level literary activity requires active courts and continuation of circle of patronage. The political weakness of uh, the Sultanate of Ahmadnagar in the first half of the 17th century uh, was possibly or probably a very important role. But when we see other courts emerging, and in particular Shivaji's, we do not see patronage to courtly writing in Persian. We see other patronage. And also, the Nizam Shai Sultanate may have tried to do something, and Malik Ambar definitely was very active in the first half of the century, and still we see no patronage. This suggests that actually this relative weakness of Persian production was not only the result of weaker courtly circles, but something about uh, the nature of and practice of Persian in this period in the decade. And to understand this point, let us compare the Deccan with North India quickly. From the 15th century, the position of Persian in the North began to change. The language entered new administrative and literary niches, and its impact penetrated deep into literary cultures. Under Akbar, Persian became the sole language of the empire, and Muzaffar Alam suggests that this choice was made because of the non-denominational character of Persian or its ability to present non-religious ideas, and we are returning here to Eaton's uh, um, definition from earlier. 
uh, also the rich literary legacy of Persia that promoted the ideas of justice and kingship, uh, kingship and its position as a non-region-specific uh, uh, language, all really pushed it to, to, uh, as an ideal language of empire. This attracted more and more people. Five, um, five minutes, okay. Well, we started five minutes later, so. Um, okay, I'd that's fair to, enough. Yeah, I'd, I'd try to dance, yeah. um, to condense things. Okay, um, so th the point is that the moment that Persian became a language of empire, it means that more uh, people who are not part of the natural Persian speakers uh, entered the production in this language, and that included the historians Abul Fazl and uh, Abdel Qader Badawni, the poet Faizi, all of them um, Indian Muslims, and also Chandraban uh, Brahman, um, whose name suggests that he was not much of a Muslim at all. Now, just like North India, the Deccan Sultanate's elite society was very heterogeneous. Local Muslims, or Deccanis, emerged as a politically unified group with strong affiliation with the region. Non-Muslims such as Brahmins and Marathas were integrated into state service to some degree, eh, but they definitely maintained spatial, social, and linguistic identity eh, very strong in the locality. Transient communities, mostly of Iranian origin, eh, who called themselves foreigners, or Rariban in Persian, kept their mobility along trans-regional networks while accepting positions eh, in local eh, courts. For all groups, language served as an integral part of their identity. Dakani was created by the Kanis, administra administration remained multilingual, unlike the Mughal case, with Marathi, Kannada, and Telugu in different parts of the Deccan. Persian, of course, was an important courtly court, a, a courtly language, as well as diplomatic and political language. Cross-linguistic influence and impact continued and even intensified. For example, Persian terminology in Marathi um, administrative documents and Persian genres, tropes, and molds of Dakani, in Dakani literature. Yet Persian remained a language of a certain clique. It never became a state language. And in that sense, it was not exclusive, uh, inclusive as in the Mughal case, but remained exclusive. As a result, almost all Persian works written in the court of the Deccan were composed by members of the mobile elite. I, I have a few examples for that, which I can skip. Uh, we do know that in uh, both Bijapur and Golconda, almost all writers of Persian, may it be poetry or tarikh style history, were Iranians. Either migrants from Iran or associating themselves with networks of Iranians. We don't have people identifying themselves as Dakanis writing in Persian with very few exceptions. For example, the Dakani poet Wajhi who left also a Diwan in Persian. As a, a result, the Persian historiography in the Deccan necessitated continuous links to the itinerant, itinerant migratory networks of foreigners. This marks a major shift or, or difference from Mughal historiography and its propagators. The conditions to sustain this community in Maharashtra collapsed towards the end of the 16th century due to political instability under Murtaza Nizam Shah I. 
accompanied by Watabatabai uh, terms general massacre of foreigners, leading exactly the migration of Kumi, Zuhuri, Firishka, and others to um, uh, Bijapur. Interestingly, we see a similar case in Bijapur in the last two decades before the Mughal conquest of 1686, when Nazir Ahmad argues that we find no Persian poet or scholar of repute, end quote, in this period. Of course, Persian influence did not disappear from Maharashtra. Sufi sites of the Deccan remained centers of the production of texts in particular genres. Um, Jyoti Balachandran recently have, have demonstrated how it worked in Gujarat. We know about continuation of production in um, Bijapur in Golconda and probably also in sites like Khuldabad in Persia. Uh, more implicitly, we see other mechanisms um, but let's say institutions, terminology, continuing to, to be practiced throughout the 17th century from uh, the land reforms and, and taxation uh, practices under Malik Ambar into the 1620s. And of course, we know about all the continuation of those tropes and language into the reign of um, even, even to the Maratha Empire, to, to Shivaji's days, uh, when there was an attempt to read the language of Persian terminology, which shows how much, and Ethan suggests that, it shows how much Persian was important in this. Um, and yet we see that the upper layer of disintegration, the, the, the things so much related to the concept of the persographia were completely absent in the 17th century, in the first half at least of the 17th century. Now, this unique character of the production of Yusuf Persian had significant impact on the knowledge of the period with the lack of any internal Maharashtrian perspective in Persian, of course, as, as the works of Sumit Gua and Prachi Deshpande in the past have shown. Uh, we have other sources from Maharashtra to talk about history and to help us to, to um, understand the history of the place, but we, we have no tarikh works from Maharashtra until the Mughals arrived and, and introduced their own practice of Persian writing in the last decades of the, um, of the century. It raises though a very important question about the Persian cosmopolis itself and how we understand it, how we can use it to understand, to analyze this kind of meetings of, of cultural, literary and historiographical traditions. We have seen that more technical aspects persisted uh, throughout the period. Other indirect influence can be traced in places like Vijayanagara, as discussed by Philip Wagner, for example. Yet the heart of the definition of the cosmopolitan, as suggested by Eaton, centers around concepts of moral and social orders, language of prestige and literature, or discourse of universal dominion, and we cannot see any of this in Maharashtra at the time. This important aspect of the Persian cosmopolis was closely associated with a certain political setting. In the Mughal Empire, it became part of what defined the empire as such, going beyond any kind of Iranian direction to create other centers of production in Persian of, or of Persographia. In the case of Maharashtra, we see that it's not always the case in the Deccan as a whole, until the very late 17th century. This is not a sign of rejection of Muslim rule altogether or this kind of um, 
antipathy towards a, a interaction with Muslim uh, religious philosophical concepts, as we have heard in earlier papers today. Uh, and I have also shown elsewhere that even the Marathas themselves kept and even promoted the memory of their past association with the Nizam Shah rulers as part of defining their uh, political justification. Yet, this did not translate into association with the Persian, uh, Persian at well the way that we see in North India. Persian persisted to be linked to trans-regional networks, notwithstanding its impact, it did not become a language of great communication or inclusion. On the margins of the imperial world then, the integration and influence of the cosmopolis seems to have been remained intermittent, precarious, incomplete in a way. And the case of Maharashtra in the first half of the 17th century suggests that we should consider breaking the category of cosmopolis when coming to examining its actual working in a particular a net, a, a, let's say in particular landscape, which is quite different from the imperial one so dominant in this historiography. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.